Welcome to a new episode of the Stanford Psychology Podcast. Today, I had the big honor of speaking with Alan Fisk, Distinguished Service Professor of Anthropology at UCLA. Alan is the author of multiple books, including Structures of Social Life, where he introduces his famous relational models theory, uh, and Virtuous Violence, co-authored with Cage Wright. We discuss why labeling emotions can often lead us to misunderstand our emotions and why maybe we're giving too much importance to the emotion labels that we have as opposed to the experience of the emotion itself. Ellen then makes the case for a new emotion, kamamuta, or being moved, touched, stirred, having a rapturous experience, or tender feelings towards cuteness, which gives us an opportunity to discuss his newest work uh, together with the Kamamuta Lab at UCLA, And Alan then introduces his newest book called Kamamuta, Discovering the Connecting Emotion. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Okay. Hi, everyone. Today, I have the big pleasure of talking with Alan Fisk uh, about one of his newest papers. Uh, hi, Alan. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's a real, it's a real pleasure and an honor. So the paper you told me you want to talk about is called The Lexical Fallacy in Emotion Research, Mistaking Vernacular Words for Psychological Entities. It's a lot of very interesting words. What is, what is this paper about? <laughs> well... It grows out of my effort over the many years to try to communicate uh, precisely new constructs. And in particular, it grows out of my research on the emotion that we uh, gave the scientific name of Kamamuta to. Um, and what we discovered is that There is no everyday word in, in, in the English language or in any of the other many languages that we explored that maps one-to-one -one onto the emotion that we're studying. It has, in English, for example, and the same is true in more or less of other languages, it has many different names depending on the context and depending on the speaker, depending on the dialect, depending on the point in history. Um, but the same person can use many uh words to uh, refer to this emotion and the same per a person may not even recognize the emotion or have any name for it in other contexts so in this case uh, uh, this emotion is often called being moved being touched being having a heartwarming experience it might be called the feels in, in in a you know in a certain context but it, if it's evoked by a memory it's called nostalgia if it's evoked by feelings of connection to one's country it's called patriotism if it's evoked by in a in a charismatic or pentecostal church <clears throat> by a feeling of oneness with jesus it's called being touched by the spirit um if it's uh it's called team spirit <laughs> if you're feeling connected to your team or you know at ucla we call it brewing pride <laughs> So, but if, if on the other hand, um, it's evoked by seeing cute kittens, you say the kittens are cute, but you can't really think of a name for your own emotion. So the point is that there's no one word in, in, um, in any, any language that, uh, refers to this language that people used for this emotion and only this emotion. So 
what we that's why we termed we coined a term we borrowed from Sanskrit uh, the term kamamuta which means moved by love um, because not because the ancient the speakers of the ancient speakers of Sanskrit somehow captured this emotion perfectly but because uh, no one knew what kamamuta meant and therefore we could define it and we could say this is what it is regardless of what name people use in 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 German Japanese Hindi you know, uh, in, in Arabic or, <coughs> or, uh, Chitambuka or Chilambia, you know, uh, whatever people call it, or whether they often in some languages and in some contexts don't have any name for it, we can say, okay, this is what we're talking about. And it doesn't, you, you, the, the word that people use for it <coughs> is a, is a clue but it isn't uh, it isn't definite evidence. So w what what this paper does is extend that finding to constructs in emotion theory and by implication to all kinds of psychological constructs where scientists have uh, psychologists, but not only psychologists, also many other social scientists have tended to take words from their language and assume that if there's a word in the language, there's a thing in the world a thing in the world in the sense of a psychological phenomenon or a social phenomenon or something, but they've, they've reified words and they've assumed that everyday vernacular words uh, refer to definite things. And that's simply not the way language works. It isn't true that uh, people, uh, people's use of language is very variable from moment to moment and depending on their intentions and so forth, depending on who they're talking to and what they're talking about. Um, and, so you can't, you shouldn't, the argument of the paper is, in a nutshell, is you shouldn't use everyday words for scientific constructs, because then you'll argue about what they mean, and they don't mean anything except the way people use them. But the way people use them doesn't correspond one-to-one -one with things in the world. So people have words for unicorns, right, and goblins, but that doesn't mean that there are unicorns and goblins, nor does it mean any two people agree about what a unicorn is or what a goblin is. And I may, even as one speaker, I may mean one thing by unicorn at one time, at one point when I'm speaking and speaking to somebody else in another context, I mean something else. But that doesn't work. That's fine for everyday language, but doesn't work for science. So the argument is that you shouldn't, that it's extremely confusing and leads to to blind alleys and and uh, and um, serious epistemological errors if you use everyday words for scientific constructs. Yeah, that's, it's, it's really interesting and it seems like a discussion that is so crucial to have, but oftentimes really is not have. And you have a couple of quotes in the paper that I really like. One is, uh, we wanted to study the emotion itself. Now you're talking about Kamamuta in this part. Right? We wanted to study the emotion itself, not the usage of related vernacular lexemes in any language. Right? We want to get to the core of it. And then there's another quote where you say, an emotion is what it is, regardless of how people label it, regardless of whether they label it, and regardless of whether the language provides any simple way to label it at all. Right, so it, it can really depend on the context, as you said, and it's it's far from clear when we say I'm angry, uh, I'm frustrated, yeah. I'm happy. What we actually mean by that, and if I communicate with someone else, that they actually understand what I'm talking about. Yes, and 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 we use words in all kinds of metaphorical and uh, and and performative ways. So you say, oh, you're going to you're going on this vacation to Tahiti. I'm so jealous. 
It doesn't mean that I'm actually jealous. It means I'm saying, oh, how wonderful for you that you get to do this, right? I'm not saying that I actually have any emotion at all of jealousy. <laughs> I'm just saying good for you, right? <clears throat> and it turns out that English speakers use the word jealousy uh, when they really mean jealous, right? For two different emotions. One is, uh, I'm, I'm not happy with my girlfriend is flirting with somebody else or somebody's coming on to her. That's one kind of jealousy. But there's another thing when I when you have uh, a Lamborghini and you know I just have a Volkswagen and I and, you know I think that's not fair you know we should both have the same thing we should be even and I don't like the fact that you have something more that's a completely different emotion it may not even be an emotion it may be an attitude um, but English speakers typically use the word jealous you know I'm jealous. And I was talking to a friend uh, just a couple of days ago about this, and she pointed out, when you're really jealous, you don't say so. <laughs> so yeah, Probably not, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the point is, the point is exactly that. It's a, it's a simple point, but um, if it's true, then most research on emotions is misguided. And so it's a very strong critique because most emotion researchers – believe that there are six or 16 or something basic emotions, all of which with sometimes with one exception uh, here and there uh, correspond precisely to English words. And they just use the words anger, happiness, sadness, disgust, as if it's self-evident what those words mean and as if they mean something real and definite, um, which is not the way language works. They don't. Uh, and moreover, there are many languages uh, well, in any given language, you don't have def definite words for all emotions. And you may have words that emphasize one an emotion in one context and not in another. So if we found that in the various dialects of Arabic and standard Arabic, kamamuta, the emotion that we're studying, people don't have a name for it. They can just say, oh, I was happy or I was joyous, but they can't don't have a specific name for it, except in the context of Sufi worship where they have a number of nuanced terms and tarab music that's derived from Sufi worship. So in those contexts, they definitely have words for it. But speakers of Hindi and Urdu, uh, which are basically one language, um, really, they're at a loss to describe their emotions when they feel kamamuta. Uh, but they feel it. You know, but they can't, they can't, they just say, oh, that was nice or something, but they can't say specifically what it was. Right. And they might still feel it, even though they don't yes. put it in the exact scientific terms as it is, right? Yes, that's right. One, and one, and was... one, of the, one of the relevance of that, by the way, is that some theorists of emotion say emotion consists of the naming of uh, physiological bodily sensations. And if that's true, then it would be true that most that Arabic speakers most of the time and Hindi speakers most of the time are not feeling an emotion because, well, they're not naming it. Hmm. So are you making a case that this extends to emotions and emotions alone? Because I was reading no. the paper and I thought, well, this could apply to almost all definitions, right? There's no definition yeah. that is not contested. And yes, it's almost in the nature of definitions to be contested or in the nature of people to contest definitions, <laughs> right? Well, and, and, it's, and it's a kind of futile exercise to argue about what is anger, because anger is an English word. You can say, well, how do people use the word in different, in different dialects, in different contexts, in different sorts of conversations? But that's how people use the word. That We shouldn't mistake the, the use of the word for the emotion. Um, yeah. And so if you argue, what is disgust, really? You know, 
Well, it's an English word and, you know, it's whatever people use it for. But that doesn't mean that the thing itself, it, it, you can't argue about what disgust is, except to you, except to, the only answer to that is, well, how do people use it? Um, but you can argue about what kamamuta is because it's a scientific construct and we make certain claims about what it is. And uh, what it is corresponds only very approximately to any particular word or set of words in any particular language. Um, so to be clear, to have to, to make sure that you're studying what I'm studying, you know, or, study, or that there's a different, we know that you're not studying what I'm studying, we need to have a scientific term for it. And, you know, one of the illustrations in that article is a bluebird, right? <laughs> and if we argue about what bluebirds are and what they eat and, you know, what their behavior is, and as a as a British researcher, you're referring to, you know, to one genus as an American that you call bluebirds in everyday language, right? And as an American researcher, we call what we call bluebirds are not the same genus at all. It's a different bunch of birds. And so, you know, it's futile to argue about what a bluebird is. And that's why we have the Linnaean system of classification so we can know what we're talking about. And then in your paper, this is almost my favorite section where you talk about communication problems in everyday life where people are like, we talked about the same thing and, you know, I understand what they were saying and they understood what I was saying. And everyone feels like they had this great bonding moment and they shared this experience. But actually what happened is that everyone had a very different story in mind and it's all, all over the place kind of. Um, and, and, and you say that this is not as big of a problem as it would be in science if we all use different definitions and talk past each other. Uh, I don't want to challenge the claim that this would be a problem in science because it would be. I'm wondering to what extent it's a problem in everyday discourse. <laughs> Right. So when when we talk about something, I totally think I understand what you are saying and totally get your perspective. But actually, I have no idea. And both people leave feeling like they understood each other, but actually they just doubled down on their beliefs and didn't understand yeah. anything. Um, well, I think that's like often true. And it is a problem when you're trying to get at the facts. But if you're just trying to hang out with people, have a cup of coffee and, you know, exchange thoughts and feelings. You know, what I care is, are you are you sympathetic to me? Are you trying to listen to me? If you don't get the exact objective details of what my experience was, that's not so crucial, right? What I care about is you're caring about what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, but if if it's a conversation where we're really trying to pin down some facts uh, and 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 or if you don't understand my mental state and my intention and so forth, then we fail to coordinate. Then, of course, it can be a problem. So when I say it's not a problem in everyday discourse, I mean, yeah, it, it definitely can be a problem. But in much of ordinary conversation, the goal is not to have the, the main goal is not precise communication of of objective uh, information. Um yeah, that makes sense. There's what's called a Gricean uh, convention. Uh, Grice was a linguist, but, but he, he pointed out that, that the, the, the various things that make a conversation go well. And one is that you pretend to understand each other to a certain extent, right? You just, you know, so you're nodding and I don't know whether you got any idea what I'm saying, but I know that you're being appreciative and that's enough, you know? <laughs> I I guess I agree with this, but there's also something should be pointed out here, which is that people don't believe that that is true oftentimes, right? Like I don't like when I'm having a conversation with someone, even if it's just a casual conversation, I still feel like I want to understand what they're talking about and I want them to understand me. 
But actually, yeah. oftentimes that's not what's happening. And then, you know, accurately yeah. inferring what another person is thinking is oftentimes harder than it might seem. It's very hard. And it's one of the reasons that it's very hard, which takes us away from this paper, but uh, it's, it's irrelevant in a certain way to the paper even. One of the things is people don't know what they're thinking themselves. Yeah. So the articulate semantic uh, uh, verbal part of your mind that, uh, that the introspective and reflective part of your mind simply doesn't have access to most of your mind. You just uh, don't know what's going on in your mind. So right now you're listening to me speak and you're hearing phonemes and you're translating those into morphemes and putting it together with syntax. And, and then, and then you're saying something and somehow ideas are coming out of your head and turning into sounds. If you tried to explain it to me, I mean, or if I tried to explain it to you, we'd draw a blank. We just don't know how that's happening because the reflective <clears throat> introspective parts of our mind don't have simply do not have access to that. Um, so very often when we're trying to talk about our mental states, we don't know what <laughs> we're making it up as best we can. And the same is true of memory in a different way, that memory is a very constructive process. So I, if I tell you what happened yesterday, it's not a videotape. It's me making it up based on some percepts, some perceptual information, some general schemas, some things I've seen and heard other people do, my knowledge, my general knowledge about the kind of things that exist in the world. It's a, it's a construction. So, but you are likely to take it as a veridical account, and I feel that it's a veridical account. It's just that it isn't. I don't want to digress too much, but but one last point because I find this really interesting. We always like psychologists have studied this this uh, illusion that people have that they can explain things really well, right? I understand capitalism, and then you ask that, well, how does it work? What's the definition? <laughs> I don't know. Um, and then that can be really humbling. But this conversation makes me wonder whether we should apply this to ourselves, right? It's like I I yeah. know why I'm doing what I'm doing, but then someone asked me. Well, why are you happy today but sad yesterday? Why did you eat this for breakfast? Why do you like this movie? Like, yeah. I don't I don't know. I can make up stories, but if I'm honest, I have no idea. Well, it's a good thing that you don't have any idea because if you did, you'd put all the psychologists and sociologists and economists out of business. We wouldn't <laughs> we wouldn't have a job anymore. <laughs> if we wanted to know how the society worked or how the mind worked, we just ask people and we we wouldn't need uh, <laughs> we wouldn't need psychology departments and anthropology departments. <laughs> perfect transition back into academia so um back to back to the article on the lexical fallacy um you're not making a claim just to make that very clear for all the listeners that there are no universal emotions and that they're all over the place and every culture has their own emotions and there is no overlap whatsoever your your statement is neutral as to this claim right yeah that's correct um although having established a construct that's not based on a vernacular word, then we can go look and see. And in the case of Kamamuta, we have established, uh, both through uh, experiments in 19 nations in 15 languages, but also through extensive study of linguistic uh, sources and uh, uh, hundreds of ethnographies and primary sources of you know classic documents and so forth. We've established quite well, I think, that it does exist around the world uh, and throughout history. Um, now, of course, you can't prove that it exists in every culture without going into every culture. But everywhere we've looked, we found it. Um, but that's right. You could have a you can have a if you can have a, a technical uh, name for a phenomenon, whether it's an emotion or something else, and then 
Well, it's an open question whether where it you know where it is, but you actually get yourself into worse trouble if you start off with a vernacular term. So if I say I'm studying anger, and then you go if you assume that there is a thing that corresponds to the English word anger, even though you don't even know what anger is as an English speaker, you use the word all the time, but that doesn't mean you exactly know how you use it. Um, then you go looking for this thing called anger in other cultures, and then you just assume somehow it's translatable. And the answer is, well, no, it's not very well translatable. Uh, you can't find a precise word in any other language that corresponds to the way English speakers use the word English. Um, there are approximations, but they include other things that the English word doesn't. They exclude other things and so forth. And, you know, they make distinctions in another language. They're, you know. And it's not clear why you should use the word anger as your construct and not rage or being pissed off or being ticked off or, uh, uh, you know, outrage or, uh, you know, why, why anger? I mean, there's a lot of words for emotions in that general region of, <laughs> of feeling. And uh, why pick anger and exclude all the others? Anyway, yeah. No, it doesn't mean that... Uh, it, the, the the point about the lexical fallacy is true, regardless of whether emotions are are universal and uh, and and or regardless of what aspects of emotions are are universal. But you said early on, Eric, that that you know this applies to many other areas besides emotion, and I would say yes. And the first draft of the paper actually tried to go out on a limb a little further. But the editor uh, and <laughs> Rebecca Sachs was the editor. She was very kind and very helpful. And the reviewers said, uh, Alan, you know, make a case for, you know, hard enough to make a case for emotion research. Don't try to do it for all of psychology. So I said, OK, OK. <laughs> and that was wise advice. <laughs> so can we expect future papers about all other domains of psychology? <laughs> well, I'll let you write the next one, Aaron. <laughs> OK, I'm on it. Um, why are we so, what would you call it, lingual-centric? Why do we think that the, the, the way to describe an emotion, the best way to describe an emotion is by language? Why, why language? Why not biology or our cultural conceptualization? And, and, and do you think cultures differ in how, I'm going to stick with this word that I just made up, how lingual-centric they are? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think many psychologists are reductionists in, in, in explicitly or implicitly, and they would love to reduce emotions to physiology and, uh, you know, to, to neurochemistry and brain wiring. The problem is that we can't, we haven't been able to do that. Um, but I am not a reductionist in that way. I think that, uh, you know, the physiology, the neurochemistry, the, the, the hormones involved and so forth are important and interesting part of emotion, but they're not, emotion can't be reduced to those things. Um, but one point, and then I'll get back to your specific um, question. Until we get the constructs right, we won't find out what chemistry is involved or what you know anything about the biology? Because if we're if we're not cutting nature at its joints, if we're not, if if the English word anger doesn't refer to a specific and and delimited phenomenon, a real entity in the mind, then when we go look at it for with fMRI or you know try to find out its relation to testosterone, we'll never we'll we'll just get confusing answers because we're not trying to identify a single uh, monolithic thing. Um, 
Yeah. So bring me back to the question. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was why we are so focused on the idea that oh, yeah. uh, words are the best way to describe an emotion. Well, I mean, part of it is an artifact of the nature of scholarly communication. I mean, uh, if you're a dancer, that's not your focus, right? If you're a, a classical composer, if to the extent you're interested in emotions, you not worried about words you're worried about the music and you know the dancer is worried about the choreography but academic life is conducted in words <laughs> yeah and then there's another distinction that i want to talk about before we move on to talk more about kamamuta and what this emotion is and why we should have it or maybe shouldn't have it um so so we talked about why do we think that words are the best way to capture an emotion there's another element that is like our words are the best way to capture an emotion compared to all other words that all other cultures have come up with, right? There might be many translations of anger, but our word really captures what is going on here. Whereas others, they're, just, yeah, they're, they're kind of approximations. They're like attempts at, you know, being as good as we are, but actually they're not. Um, why do you think, do we have this bias? Is it this motivational force that we want to feel better than others? And it's like social identity theory stance, or is it just a cognitive <laughs> mechanism, like a naive realism where I just can't help but see reality the way I see it. And therefore I think it's, it's just accurate how I perceive it. Well, it's a good question, Eric. And, and what always surprises me is when I read uh, German researchers or Japanese researchers or, uh, you know, researchers from Venezuela or something, and they start with the English words. And I think, hey, 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 you know, and then and sometimes sometimes you read a paper in which somebody talks about, you know, trying to define what an emotion is, say anger. And it turns out that their participants are not English speakers. And that's not the term that they used. But they don't even bother to tell you that that they that what they asked the informants about was not English word anger, because that wasn't the language, the native language of the informants. So, I mean, part of it has to do, obviously, with the history of psychology as a, as a, you know, which with important, you know, with exceptions of Wundt and Freud and many other important exceptions has been an Anglo, you know, centric mm -hmm. discipline. Um, but if we had, you know, if it had grown out of, if academic psychology had grown out of another cultural tradition, we'd probably be using another language. So we can also see the opposite, especially with German, but it's the same mechanism where oftentimes in English text, I find these random German words that are just inserted for, I don't know why, to, to, to seem more professional or like the person knows knows other languages or because that, yeah. this word originally yeah. captures things. And oftentimes, you know, I speak German, I'm a native German speaker. I don't know the word. Or, so that's just very <laughs> obsolete that my grandmother wouldn't have heard of it. Um, but it still has this ring to it. It's like, this is originally capturing it from back in the day when, you know, academia in Germany was really more predominant. Yeah, uh, so well, and, and of course, and of course, you know, there was a time when you know psychology was much further advanced in Germany than in the U.S. But yeah, yeah, well, there are all kinds of rhetorical devices people use to be persuasive, and that's one of them. Is to, you know, I mean, and even I have to, you know, with embarrassment, say that by using the word kamamuta for our thing, I'm, I'm, um, that's a partly. It's not one percent of that is a rhetorical device. It's to say, look, I, I've named this, so, you know. You can't argue with me about what it is. Um. <laughs> and it seems really smart. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's, if you use a word in a different language, it makes you seem 
Like you really know what you're talking about. Yes, exactly. I don't know. But that's not the, really the goal here. The goal no, is, of course. To, and and sometimes I think we should have called it Kappa, or you know, given it a a, a nonsense name that doesn't you know that doesn't mean anything except except uh, you know, yeah. And so sometimes when people hear that we're studying this emotion called Kamamutta, they want to know what it really meant in Sanskrit. And I don't care what it meant in Sanskrit, except for poetic purposes and so forth. But I'm not saying that what we're studying is what uh, Sanskrit speakers meant when they said Kamamutta. I picked a dead language for which there's no, you know, Kamamutta. Uh, Sanskrit is not a, is not a, there are many speakers of Sanskrit, but it's a scholarly language, not a family language. And I, I tried to find a word in Greek, but the Greeks didn't have a name for it. So I couldn't oh. do that. But I was going to follow the scientific tradition of, you know, naming it from some ancient Greek word. But <laughs> so, okay, let's switch to it. And let's, let's talk about Kamamuta. Uh, before we talk about some details, we, you talked about you know, what are some manifestations of Kamamuta? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What is a formal definition of Kamamuta? And maybe even before that, how did you get interested in this topic out of all the emotions that we have and are unable to label? Why this? <laughs> well, I mean, it's just a silly accident of um, personal history. Uh, Thomas Schubert, Beate Siebt, and Lotte Thompson and I were uh, taking a little holiday. Um, well, it was sort of an academic retreat and sort of just for fun. And in the course of many, many things we talked about, Thomas talked about how he would find his eyes moist and would getting tears watching, uh, you know, kind of stupid movies with his seven-year-old. I mean, the movies were fine for seven-year-olds, but he said, why am I crying about these things? And then he said, and the truth is sometimes in superhero movies, when somebody does something really noble and self-sacrificial and comes to the aid of other people and so forth, He also gets tears. And he said, what emotion am I feeling? Because it's not sadness. It's not, you know, what is it? And so we talked about it and we all thought, oh, I think I've had that emotion. And somebody said, oh, yeah, I get goosebumps when I have that. And anyway, so then we <laughs> we started trying to study it. Thomas and Beata uh, studied it with experiments primarily, but also diary studies. And uh, I did lots and lots of formal and informal interviews And then I did ethnological work trying to find this emotion, see if this emotion existed in other cultures and uh, in historical sources and in the Bhagavad Gita. And, you know, it's, it's very prominent in the Odyssey, for example. Yeah. So it just came from Thomas's observation and his perplexity that he had <clears throat> moist eyes watching dinosaurs and, and, or whatever it was. <laughs> So, so what is a formal definition of Kamamuta? What is that? And how does it relate to your... I don't want to go into uh, the relational models theory too much, but how does it relate to it? Well, the emotion that we have called Kamamuta um, is identified by five facets, like we think any emotion is, although it's a little problematic whether there is such a category as emotion. I'm not sure if that's a valid scientific construct either. But anyway... Um, Kamamuta uh, is evoked by the sudden intensification of communal sharing. And that's by sudden closeness, by suddenly feeling connected, either with a person, with the ocean, with a dolphin, you know, with God, with a dead ancestor, you know, somebody you remember. Um, 
but or just with a stranger somebody who or even with a, a kitten who your heart goes out to and you just suddenly fall in love with so roughly the sudden love or belonging suddenly becoming uh, salient and so it's not caused by love itself or by communal sharing itself it's caused by that becoming suddenly salient so I love my grandsons all the time, <laughs> but when one of them does something especially affectionate, then I suddenly feel kamamuta, okay? Um, so the, the cause of it, which is part of our definition or part of our construct is that it's caused uniquely by the sudden intensification of communal sharing. And that can be due to somebody, an unexpected kindness, people being extremely welcoming when you were not sure that you would they would want you there or not sure they would appreciate your being there, uh, to, um, you know, you're imagining or remembering affection in some kind, um, or your true love says, I can't live without you, I want to be with you forever, you know, and it can be occur in hugely important cases like that, <laughs> or in where you feel connected to a divinity, but also in just trivial cases where, you know, somebody just does something trivially nice to you. But you, you know, so it's not, it can occur at all levels of intensity. So that's the cause. Um, it has, and depending on the language of the, of the person, it may or they may or may not, and depending on the context and so forth, they may or may not have a name for it. In English, depending on the context, speakers may not have any name for it, like when they're looking at cute kittens. <laughs> um, but um, common, but often people say they're moved, they're touched, they had a heart, heartwarming experience. Um, but as I said, it could also be, you can call it, you know, some kind of patriotic feeling or team feeling or some kind of, it has various names in religious contexts and so forth and so on. And when it's evoked by a memory, it's called nostalgia, but you wouldn't call it, I mean, most of the time, I, I, you know, I'm not saying that every time people say I'm feeling nostalgic, they always mean kamamuta, but it's a clue, they, you know, good chance that they do. So there are names for it that help us identify it. But if, even if people can't name it or misname it, that's not the only way to identify it. Another thing is that it's a very positive emotion. Um, and, and it can occur in the context of a background of negative emotions or preceding negative emotions, but the emotion itself is positive. So if I miss my mother and my father who have died, I feel sad that they have died and I can't be with them. But then I suddenly think about how much I love them and they love me. The, the background is negative, but the feeling itself that comes on when I think about, you know, how, how important they were in my lives and what great parents they were and so forth, that's positive. But it can occur with no negative background at all. Just you're walking down the street and somebody, <laughs> you meet a reunion, you see somebody you haven't seen for years and you're so glad to be with them and there's no negative background at all. Uh, we we have a little, you know, there are other theorists who would disagree about that, but we found that it's, uh, the positivity predicts the emotion, but negativity is not a good, you know, how negative some people feel just not correlated with it. <clears throat> um, so positivity, it has certain names, it has certain cause, and then there are certain sensations that vary with the individual and vary with the intensity, but, and, and they're rarely all present, but again, they're indicators. So when people feel kamamuta, if it's intense enough, 
they often have a kind of warm feeling in the heart, right? And they, they just say, oh, I feel some warmth here, right? And it's not here or, you know, in the back or something. It's not on the skin. They say, you know, it feels warm in my chest. Or sometimes they say, well, it's not exactly warm. It's just this pleasant fuzzy feeling or bubbly feeling or something like that. It's not the feeling of the heart beating fast or something like that. <clears throat> but people sort of attribute it to the heart. And it's all a mystery because there are no thermal, there are no thermally sensing neurons in the thorax. So whatever people are feeling, it's the anatomists would say, well, it can't be from temperature sensing neurons in the chest because you don't have any. The only temperature sensing neurons are on the skin and in the esophagus. And it's not that people are that people aren't reporting what they feel when they drink a hot drink, which is the hot drink going down <coughs> the esophagus. They're feeling that's not what they're describing. So what they're describing, we don't know. Uh, that's a, but some people, I don't ever get that sensation. I just know that lots of people do. <laughs> some people get it only if the emotion is very intense, but not if it's not so intense. Another common sensation um, is uh, tears or moist eyes. And this is important because many emotion researchers and many lay people just think tears mean sadness. And of course, we know that you can have tears when your, you know, dust gets in your eyes, but these are tears of joy, um, and they don't indicate anything about sadness. Um, they're, uh, you know, people get moist eyes <laughs> when, you know, their true love proposes marriage or somebody, some stranger comes to help them and, 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 and takes a risk to rescue them or, or just is kind, you know, just an unexpected kindness. So no, not everybody gets tears at Kamamuta. And many people get tears if it's intense, but not if it's so weak, not if it, not if they, it's a mild emotion. But tears are also associated with it. Now, tears, this warm feeling in the chest, I don't know any other emotion that people that, that occurs in. But tears, of course, do occur when you drop a brick on your foot or the firing squad is about to shoot you, right? Um, the, you know, they, they occur in other contexts. So tears by themselves aren't, you know, aren't an indicator. It's tears in the, in the context of these other things. Another thing is that people get choked up and they can't, you know, excuse me, I can't, you know. So when people are feeling strong kamamuta, they get a, a frog in the throat or a lump in the throat. And it's fine. They're, 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 I think it's a constriction of these muscles here, but we don't know exactly. Uh, but not always. It's just that's another sign that people might be feeling it. And then goosebumps, um, which is the hair, the follicles in the hair, little, little tiny muscles in the hair, at the hair follicles making your hair stand up, whether you have much of any hair to be seen or not. Um, and you can have goosebumps anywhere in your body, but often in the back or the neck, but can be the arms or legs or anywhere. Um, but of course, you can get goosebumps of fear of sexual arousal or just being cold. So, so, but if somebody has a warm feeling in the chest and tears and they're choked up, um, you know, <laughs> and they have goosebumps and they're smiling with joy, then I think, oh, okay, this probably come on with. Another thing package. that's interesting is that people often, without even noticing it, go like this. Hmm. And it could be that they go like this because something about the warmth in the chest makes them yeah. put the, putting, I don't putting their hand on the chest for this. Yeah. yeah, I don't think that's what it is. I think it's a reflexed hug. So you start, you feel like hugging. <laughs> if there's nobody, mm. there, if there's somebody there, you stop here. But if there's nobody there, <laughs> um, but I, it's very hard to prove that that's what it is. 
Now, of course, this can become a ritualized gesture, and you know, the Pledge of Allegiance in the United States or in the Middle East, uh, a sign of friendship and <clears throat> peace and, and and amity and so forth. But uh, it's also just kind of a reflex that some people have sometimes when they're feeling this, and that does seem to be widespread. I, um, and then there are cultures in which people make specific. There are some culture-specific things. <laughs> So throughout Africa, north and south of the Sahara, and throughout um, the, the southern part of the Mediterranean and in, in ancient Greece, women, but not men, ululate. They make this funny sound, which I don't know how to make, but the tongue goes back and forth and they make this wavering high-pitched sound, mm -hmm. um, which I'm pretty sure, um, and talking to people from these cultures, I'm pretty sure is, is a, 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 a sign of of Kamamuta, but it's also ritualized. So when you, when a woman hears that sound nearby, she starts making it before she even knows what's going on. Um, but anyway, so th there are certain, um, uh, you know, gestures and sensations. And then finally, it, it's motivating. And I think that's one of the functions of emotions. Emotions are sort of to draw your attention to what needs to be done. <laughs> and, it makes you want to be. It makes you want to be nice and kind and helpful and tell people how much you love them. It makes so the the joke that we have is it makes you want to call your grandmother and say how important she is to you. It makes you want to go hug somebody, even some stranger. You know, can, excuse me, can I hug you? I'm feeling common winter. You know, but we have we have heard reports like that that people have been so moved by music that they went out at the intermission and just wanted to hug any stranger they could find. <laughs> but it 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 makes you very. Uh, want to reinforce and extend your your communal sharing relationships so it has I, a, I, a that that occurs the other things occur just at a moment but that that can last just for a few minutes but can it last a lifetime in the extreme sense in the extreme case this desire to be close and to belong and to be kind i i think at this point everyone can relate to this emotion there were so many examples where i was like yep I mean, maybe not the tongue clicking, but everything else is like, yeah, that's, that's, it's certainly a thing that we should be studying. Now you say it's, it's an intensification of a communal relationship that existed before. Can it also, well, no, no, not intensification. It, it doesn't, excuse me for interrupting, but doesn't the emotion, the relationship doesn't have to have existed beforehand. Mm, right. So some stranger can be extremely kind yeah. to me and that evokes it. Or I, I see a, a, a beautiful sleeping baby and I just love the baby. <laughs> baby doesn't even know I'm there. But, you know, it's not a baby I've ever seen before, right? But it often occurs when the relationship was there, but it suddenly becomes salient, right? It doesn't, it, it, it can occur just because you think about the relationship. <laughs> it doesn't require an external action, but it can also be the sense of sudden connection can be because your team won and we did it together and our fans supported us and my mom always drove me to practice, you know, this feeling of oneness, right? <laughs> but it but it doesn't have to be a pre-existing relationship. Yeah. Yeah, it, it can intensify the relationship. No. So I I read about the examples of wanting to hug someone and call your grandmother and you know tell her you love her, which sounds great. I, also on the Kamamuta lab website, there's a bunch of videos. It's like, do you want to feel Kamamuta? Watch these videos. And I was like, I mean, that's a challenge. And not just the first video is just a video of a lion cop that is all alone and in a cage and is all sad. And then some hero humans rescue it and raise it. And you see them <laughs> cuddle with the lion as it grows up. And, you know, the, the lion introduced them to their 
to to his wife, you know, wife lion and lioness, uh, and they're all happy and everyone's cuddling and there's Aerosmith playing in the background. It's like okay, <laughs> I, I get it, wonderful. Um, and as I said, it's a positive emotion. It has all these positive effects on pro-social behavior and helping people. Um, so should we have more of it? Because um, what I really liked about your relational models theory is that you don't say there's one model that is better than like one relationship to have that is better than others. It's really situation dependent, which one is, is appropriate. And if we, if we act in the wrong way, right. And you can imagine that I see this waiter in a restaurant who does this really kind thing for the kid's birthday at the you know table of another family. Uh, and I'm like, Oh my God, that's great. And then the waiter comes here and it's like, um, cool. So, you know, here's the bill. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to pay for that, but I'm going to invite you over. How about, you know, my place next week and I cook for you. That would be very weird. Um, and it would be motivated by uh, Kamamuta. So would you say that maybe not that there is a dark side, but that it can be inappropriate in places building on uh, relational models theory? Well, communal sharing and Kamamuta in particular are, although when you first encounter the idea, they seem like just purely wonderful and purely good. But Communal sharing, the sense of oneness, the sense of wanting to be totally connected and feeling like you have some bodily something in common, some blood or, you know, or my blood relatives or my, you know, genetic people or something. It can also lead to ethnic cleansing. It can also lead to, you know, caste like exclusion and refusing to marry or eat with other people and so forth and so on. Um, and Great orators, to come back to Kamamuta, great orators uh, typically know how to evoke Kamamuta. So Winston Churchill, I would argue, in his World War II speeches was, uh, among other things, evoking Kamamuta that motivated people to be brave and courageous and persist and, 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 and you know, evoked a, a patriotic Kamamuta, right? But on the other side, so did Hitler. Hitler, Hitler came to power in part, I think, and I'm not an expert on Hitler or the World, or World War II, but <clears throat> the rise of the Nazi Party. But all the accounts of his oration were that he made people feel connected and feel like they had a purpose and feel like they were there was something special, Aryan and wonderful about them. So uh, you can evoke Kamamuta for good purposes or bad. And in a more benign way, a great deal of marketing is intending to evoke, you know, that the Budweiser has commercials at the Super Bowl. I haven't watched this year's Super Bowl commercials, but, you know, to evoke Kamamuta, um, you know, uh, where the Clydesdales come and rescue this little puppy and so forth and so on. And they're trying to sell you something or they're trying to make you feel positive about their brand. Um, so it can be used for marketing. It can be used for political purposes. And of course, it's used all the time commercially. I mean, Pixar movies is a you know billion, multi-billion dollar company because they can reliably evoke this, and you're willing to pay for a ticket or pay to stream it online because you know, and, and it's that's harmless, right? But you know, they're doing it. I'm sure they love making the movies, but they're doing it to make money, and and uh, and other people are doing it. You know, I mean because they want to get a lot of views on YouTube. So an awful lot of YouTube and other social media consists of stimuli that evoke this and attract viewers because they do. But yes, once you, once you, 
I mean, it can be it can be used manipulatively, let's say, to try to get you to buy something or to try to get you to go kill your neighbors. Yeah, I, I had fun preparing for this conversation, watching these videos, but I can also remember times where I watched these videos when I really should have been doing research. So I <laughs> just just soon take a very non-battening example. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're somewhat running out of time and I want to uh, uh, be aware of your time. Um, but maybe one last question. What is the future direction where you want to take this uh, research? And if you have any other concluding thoughts that you want to mention on the lexical fallacy or in Kamamuta, Anything yeah. that you want everyone to know about? Um, well, there's lots that we don't know about Kamamuta. <clears throat> We're very interested in the ontogeny of it. Do babies feel it the, the moment they are born and cuddle up with mom or the moment that Papa snuggles and rocks them? Or is it not something I don't feel for till they're five or six or seven or eight? It's extremely difficult to study without self-report. and um, But that connects with... You know, we would, I don't want to reduce Kamamuta. It isn't reducible to what goes on in the brain, you know, in terms of neural signals or chemicals. But I nevertheless would like to know what those are. And I think that they're related to the the, the chemistry and the and the neural systems that are involved in maternal bonding to offspring. So mammals, mammalian mothers have to be terribly motivated and bonded to their, by motivated by and bonded to their offspring. And I think that the Kamamuta is phylogenetically uh, evolved from that. But we'd like to know. So is oxytocin important? Uh, what is the role of dopamine? And what is the role of serotonin? What is the role of the insulin? That would be nice to know. It, it won't, you know, I mean, it's an end in itself. Whether that reveals something of interest to psychologists, let's say, or to anthropologists, I'm not sure. Um, and we also are, the lab is, is doing a lot of work to see if Kamamuta can be used to make the world a better place. So mm -hmm. Jana Blumster has uh, just recently got her PhD in the Kamamuta lab uh, at, at the University of Oslo, um, exploring how feelings of Kamamuta make, that immigrants experience in Norway, makes them feel more at home and connected and at ease in Norway, and conversely, how uh, native Norwegians' experiences of Kamamuta uh, with uh, immigrants makes them more accepting and makes them more welcoming to immigrants and so forth and so on. So we'd like to know, is this, is this a way, is there, are there ways to transcend the differences and hostilities in the world, uh, you know, based on our knowledge of, of Kamamuta. Another thing we'd like to know is, as you as you mentioned, my theory of relational models is that there are four fundamental relational models, four fundamental ways of cooperating and coordinating, four kinds of basic relationships. And if if Kamamuta is evoked by the sudden intensification of communal sharing, what is evoked by the sudden intensification of authority ranking, both by the in the subordinate or in the senior person? What is evoked by the sudden intensification of equality matching? Is there an emotion even evoked by the sudden intensification of market pricing? And then to complete the, the table, so to speak, <laughs> if there's an emotion for the sudden intensification, is there an emotion for the sudden loss uh, of any of, you know, so more loss of a communal sharing relationship. Is there an emotion, and we think there is, you know, but we don't know, associated with the feeling that I have transgressed the relationship, 
or something like guilt or shame. Is that different? Are there different emotions for transgressing an authority ranking relationship than a communal sharing relationship? <laughs> and then what about my emotions when <clears throat> my partner violates it, right? Another set of emotions when somebody violates an equality matching relationship, is that different from when my partner in a market pricing relationship violates the relationship and so forth? So if we take Kamamuta as a if we're correct about Kamamuta and we take it as a prototype, then maybe we can fill out the table of <coughs> motions for other sudden transformations of other relationships. Yeah. So that's like not what I'm working on now. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like an amazing, wonderful, but also busy future ahead on this line of research. It is. And it's, I have to say, I really enjoy doing research and theory of all kinds, but the Kamamuta research is especially <laughs> rewarding. <laughs> It's a joy to to go talk to people or listen to people or observe people feeling Kamamuta. Yeah. I, yeah, sounds great. Makes me want to research it. Yeah, sounds, sounds great. And maybe someone listening will be interested. Uh, I hope so. I out. hope so. And uh, if so, they're welcome to contact, uh, well, of course, to read my book and the articles, the many articles that the lab has produced on Kamamuta, but uh, also to join us in doing the research because... You know, what we know about Kamamuta is this much, <laughs> enormous amount to be to be learned about it. And everything from its, you know, what kind of narratives evoke it to, you know, to why people get goosebumps and tears. What, what are that, you know, why would they get goosebumps and tears? What's the, is there a function of that or is it just an accident of physiology, you know? <laughs> and what the heck is this warm feeling in the chest? <laughs> <laughs> Why do people think that their chest is getting warm? So there's lots to learn. Wonderful. What a perfect note to end on. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I love this well, conversation. Well, thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. And, uh, and uh, I hope, well, let's keep in touch. And uh, I appreciate your, your, your perceptive and careful uh, questions have been very, very illuminating conversation. Thank you so much. Stay safe and, and be well.